freedom feels different. Podcasting was the vehicle. Freedom is what feels different. There are no rules. There's no playground set up. There's no, there's no gates. This just got here. And none of y'all could really tell me anything about making up the rules here because I made this space. <laughs> Queen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the podcast that, despite so many odds, so many challenges, made it to 100 opus. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? I'm geeked, Scott. I'm excited. <laughs> the century. I, I, I want to go back and add up the minutes, all of the hours of content created over these past two years. Oh, I'm purposefully not getting emotional. But now that the mics are on and we're doing this for the 100th time, I kind of I kind of feel I kind of feel it wanting to wanting to come a little bit. Take all of those recorded moments and then triple it. And that's the amount of time you have in the recording process. <laughs> triple? I would say more than that. I'm I saying mean, some... recording and production. Yeah. And then all week long, getting ready, leading up to each recording. Guest acquisition, right. all of the conversations and emails and pre-meetings. So That's ooh, all you. That's all you. Goodness gracious. Well, the very first thing I'm going to say, Scott, for this 100th opus is thank you. I mean, there are so many people who have had their hands on Triloquy over these past two years, institutional and otherwise. A lot of people that really just helped me make this thing become what I wanted to become and, and moving forward. And of all of those people, you've been here through it all, Scott. So thank you. I really appreciate all of the time and energy that you've put into this project. You're welcome. And I'm glad to be here. And we have to say that there is one episode that I was not involved in because I was on vacation. Who was your guest host? Oh, was that the one with Wayne Shorter? There. But see, yeah. this is the thing. You were involved on the back end still. You were oh, still yeah. here. You, so your fingerprint is on all of them. That's true. Even beyond my thanks for you, Scott, I have to thank the listeners. Thank you so much, each and every one of you, for your continued support. Oh, my gosh. I mean, uh, there are some of you who have been here since day one. I wish I could give a shout out to each and every one of you, but thank you so much. It really means a lot for you to sit here and listen to our ramblings and, and, and do it what we're trying to do on the broader scale of really decolonizing and shifting the discourse when it comes to what we call classical music. So it's so exciting. Thank you so very much. Support for Triloquy, in addition to your generous support, comes from the Schubert Club announcing a virtual event, Musicians on the Rise 2021 Winners Recital. Every year, the Schubert Club gives scholarships for uh, performances, concerto and solo types of performances. It was a little different uh, this year, of course, because of COVID, but they still managed to do it virtually the 98th consecutive year that the Schubert Club has given scholarships. I um, had the honor of hosting the virtual event, so you can check that out on May 13th and May 14th. You can find more information on that event and all of the Schubert Club's upcoming events at schubert.org. Huge shout out to everyone over there. 
for continuing to hold me down, to make sure I got a little bit of work, mm. and to make sure that I'm 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 keeping up with it all. So huge shout out to everyone over there at the Schubert Club. Uh, the downbeat for this 100th Opus Scott comes from one of the folks who has inspired me so many times. I've said the name Joe Button a lot over these past 100 opuses, and we're actually going to get into it a little bit in the first movement with the Joe Button podcast-themed Accidental. I'm looking forward to that. It's kind of a a podcast-themed opus for this 100th opus. Today's guests are Melissa Smay and Golda Arthur from Mission Commission, one of the podcasts that we were uh, mentioned with uh, in the New York Times article. We had the uh, pleasure, both of us had the pleasure of talking with them a few days ago. We talk about their podcast, the art of podcasting, what this could mean for the classical music field, what it could mean um, for the, the general field um, altogether. So looking forward to sharing that with y'all. Well, what do you have uh, accidental-wise this week? There is something exciting coming up on mm-hmm. uh, May 13th I, in I New live. York. I live. Yeah. The I live. International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees the union behind uh, entertainment as they build themselves. They're uh, planning a We Are Not The Met protest. I mean, not <laughs> they, are, they are planning a We Are The Met there protest. Are. There we are. No opera in 2021 without us. So we'll be talking about that protest coming up this Thursday. Lots of music in this opus, some trills in the final movement per usual. And lots more. So, again, thank you. Before we uh, hop into this first one, I'm going to go ahead and crack this Coke here. I was sounding a little um, italicized last week, (laughs) so I'm saving the liquor until after we're done. Italicized? (laughs) That's how I'll say it. Then I guess guess I'm underlined. (laughs) Anyway, uh, bravo, cheers, all of that, 100 opuses. Scott, thanks again. Let's get into movement one. It's got to get a lot of stories, a lot of tea in my DMs and my emails, but it's you with the tea this week. You mm. got sipped this media advisory, and mm-hmm. I think this is really dope. T- to talk to us about this. Coming up on Thursday, the 13th at noon, there's a rally in front of Lincoln Center Plaza to feature locked out stagehands, backstage workers, musicians, opera singers, and supporters of the Metropolitan Opera. Do you want to give the folks uh, the broad strokes as to what's been going on up there behind the behind the curtain at the Met? Well, we've been talking about how Streets is done, how last week how Streets is bike, except for the <laughs> Met. <laughs> right. But um, basically, over this whole COVID year, um, there have been lockouts of stagehands and other skilled workers. There was a while where the Met Opera was not paying its musicians, the folks down in the pit. They hired a chief diversity officer, and then folks ran with that because y'all have the money to hire somebody, but not the money to do X, Y, and Z. So it's been a mess up there um, at the Met. I'm reading a little bit from this press release. It said the Metropolitan Opera's management has used COVID-19 as leverage to seek long-term, take-it-or-leave-it, 30% wage cuts for all of the opera company's unionized employees, including stage hands, opera singers, and musicians. The cuts are to maintain in effect long after audiences return to their seats. So, you know, what this is saying, and I think it's a good point, is that the Met is using this COVID-era stuff to mm-hmm. sort of rebuild um, an even more problematic foundation. I have to say, Scott, a year ago, certainly two years ago, if you talk to me about any Met musician, anyone who worked there, I'm automatically thinking about these big paychecks that none of us I lay had, people I had that are assumption. getting. I had that assumption. And then now, you know, 
fast forward to today, I'm seeing people who really need uh, to be advocated for. And I am excited to see this sort of organization in the arts, especially in an organization as famous as the Met, and, you know, them doing it in a way that is just so unapologetic. I think we take for granted that protest is good and protest is something that we have to do. There are states across the country trying to ban protests, right? Mm-hmm. You know, but we, we have these these organized Met musicians and Met workers really pushing forward and showing classical music that it's time to, you know, it's time to get our shit together. They're against Peter Gelb and the, Mel, uh, the uh, Met's board for putting out these sort of non-negotiable demands. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're calling this the shameful behavior must end to avert a real opera tragedy. And I was like, ooh, yeah, it wasn't <laughs> Shots <that>. fired. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but also it details how, you know, some of the uh, production, uh, like sets and costumes, I believe, were set somewhere over in Wales rather than having the people that were right, on staff. Right. Some uh, A California production company was used for uh, some set construction for as well. For the Shut Up In My Bones, for, the right. black premiere that we were supposed to have. Right. So... Um, as far as I'm concerned, the people who will be gathering on Thursday have a load of legit concerns and, and grievances. I cannot wait. I hope cameras are there. Yeah, so I'm giving that a sharp. Yep, a, a nice sharp to them. I hope, Scott, that this gets uh, onto some of the more major outlets. I, I hope that I see something about this on CNN, mm. just for the fact uh, for for folks to know that this discourse, this conversation is happening yeah. in in yeah. in this field, you know, as you know, again, the podcast themed opus for one hundred. I'm thinking a lot about what Triloquy is and what we're trying to do, and to see some musicians keeping it trill up there in New York. Wow, I think this is opening up the floodgates for arts institutions all across the country to really start putting up this sort of action now. Orchestra protesting is not new to orchestras certainly in my experience i've even been a part of an of an orchestra protest so mm. that that's sort of a thing but i don't know to me this feels new certainly when we're talking about the met opera every arts um radio station other institution they're gonna have to talk about it and acknowledge it this i feel like right. this is gonna be making the rounds right right so i you know i think that we're seeing a confluence of a lot of different areas coming together you know to push back against these sort of unsavory practices, what it is, is a rally that's happening uh, noon, Thursday, May 13th, on the sidewalk in front of Lincoln Center Plaza, Broadway at 63rd. That's at noon Eastern on Thursday the 13th. Can you imagine the counterculture, the counterargument to this, all of the furs and pearls at home saying, oh, I wish they would just, you know, play, leave, leave it about the music. You know, it's really about the art form. Why are we do? you know, just not wanting to really be engaged in this part of the conversation. Do you feel like this is making it a little, how can I say, unsafe for those people? Do you think, and I, I, I say, Furs and pearls, you know, generally speaking, but the the general patron who has the two three thousand dollars for the box seat, do you think they're gonna feel comfortable going down to Lincoln Center um, and participating in something like this? I imagine we won't be seeing them participating in the strike, yeah, or not in the in the protest, in the in the in the protest. I, I imagine they're gonna be at home, and that's that says a lot, to right? Me. 
Right. Uh, I thought you were talking about trying to get through them to go and see a show or something Even like that. Even so, but... let's say we come back and with these set designs that were made over in Wales and on the uh, West Coast for the, the uh -huh. Terrence Blanchard, uh -huh. maybe there will be people down there protesting. I hope so. Are they going to feel comfortable going through all that to see, to, to have their dear opera experience? I don't think so. Probably not, but let's also face the fact that a lot of these people probably have a a different frame of reference for what is safe mm -hmm. you know they're, mm -hmm. they're probably in no real danger in that situation actually but, they, but you but, know but they would feel it anyway especially if it's us <laughs> let's 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 keep it funky right now let's keep it trill if it's 200 <laughs> black people down there at lincoln center oh, with I signs yeah, yeah, yeah. and screaming and screaming mm-hmm it ain't it ain't safe. It ain't safe. Classical music is forever changed. Shout out to everyone that is going to be um, involved in that. I hope it goes well. I hope no one is hurt. I hope the people who need to hear that, Peter Gelb, mm. certainly. I hope that the chief diversity officer, shout out to Marsha Sells. I hope she is watching very carefully. I know that a lot of this was just thrown into her lap, you know, new situation. Mm -hmm. But now this is your problem. All of the musicians across the country, all of the singers across the country, let's pay attention. Let's rally support behind this and let's replicate this. I want to see this more across the country. It ain't safe, as said by G Easy uh, Nim. You don't do you know the rapper G Easy? Um I'm sorry. So I we don't. have so we have Eminem, and then we have Jeezy. It's two, it's two. It's it's <laughs> it's it's two very light rappers that are doing good work. <laughs> oh, I see what you're doing here. <laughs> on on many of my road trips, when I wasn't you know back in my days of really traveling and and bassooning and all of that, if I wasn't listening to a podcast. I was really trying to learn music that I wasn't familiar with and, and that I wanted to, you know, get a little bit more acquainted with. People are talking about it. And uh, Jeezy was was one of those artists. Um, oh. I think uh, Jeezy's from uh, like the Seattle area, like definitely West Coast, Upper West Coast, um, has incorporated all sorts of, of interesting sounds. One of his tracks had um, a black rapper from England. That was the first time I heard an oh. English rapper really flowing. It was it was cool, but... Um, you know, since we keep talking about how it ain't safe, we can listen to this uh, No Limit remix that a lot of folks know. Here's a here's a huge shout out to everyone at the Met, to the uh, rest of you who stand in opposition to protest, to change. It ain't safe. If I hit it one time, I'm a piper. If I hit it two times, then I like her. If I fuck three times, I'm a wifer. It ain't safe for the black or the white girl. It ain't safe, it ain't safe, it ain't safe, it ain't safe. A little hip hop there, a little American classical music in the form of hip hop that <laughs> that we that we heard there. I think is a great segue into this um, next article we have from Variety headline podcast as therapy session how joe button is helping destigmatize mental health and uh, an article here by jordan rose before we get um into this of course scott i want to honor for the kajillionth time you know the fact that the content that joe button produces was in part some of the inspiration behind creating triloquy mm -hmm. um 
and you know, again, before we get into this, I wonder if you could speak a little bit to some of the conversations that we've had over these two years about what is a podcast. A lot of people are putting things out in the podcast form through podcast channels, but a podcast as an art form, as a thing, is different than a talk show. Is different than a radio show. Mm-hmm. Is different than a than a stream. What are what are your what are your some of your thoughts there in the uniqueness of podcasts as a medium. Probably the most difficult thing for me to shed from my radio training Mm. is the idea that you don't have to end at a certain time. Um, Most of the podcasts that I listen to are fairly low tech. Mm. It's just somebody... And and by low tech, you mean a couple mics? Yeah, somebody who's got a couple mics and and garage band. And, you know, it's more about the content. You know, when I'm, I'm talking about... Um, brewing shows sure. and and things like that, but um, I think the the ability to really chase down a topic, you know, you say chasing the rabbit off the trail, mm-hmm. but you know, like when I was a teacher, my students were sent, always told me that that was their favorite part of class is mm-hmm. when I would start to chase the rabbit off the trail. Sure. So I also like that about podcasting. But you're right, I do think that there's a lot of production houses, a lot of radio stations and networks that are producing shows and just using the podcast as a platform to get it out. Yeah. Before I talk about Joe Button specifically, one of the things that um, I really enjoy about that show that I translate, that I think about when it comes to Triloquy that's highlighted um, in this article is the art of... um, a collaboration that's beyond just professional. There is something personal about podcasting in the same way that there's something personal about making music. If, if we were spent this time every week, you on your guitar and me on bassoon or whatever, we would have a, that, that would be an intimacy that, right. you know, is more than just we're spitting something out and this is work. So, you know, that's one of the things that uh, another one, one of the many things I appreciate about his content. One of his co-hosts, Rory, um, you know, said something that struck a chord with me so much, I recorded it um, and kept it in my phone. Well, a lot of people confuse numbers and impact. They're not the same thing. Yeah. And, and a lot of office buildings try to put that out there, that you're not impactful if you don't have this amount of streams, mm. which is completely false. We can apply that idea to social media. We can talk about um, podcasting, of course, but it's just so important to have that diverse view of the ecosystem when it comes to any sort of uh, media, any sort of content. And podcasting is definitely doing that. And the Joe Button podcast is, uh, you know, near the top of that is one of the um, uh, most lucrative shows. You know, mm-hmm. they're in the tens of millions of, of dollars when it comes to the revenue they bring in. is incredible. Anyway, let me read a little bit um, from this article. It says, friendships, like any other relationship, are complicated. They take work and effort. They're awkward to talk about. They can mean the world at any given moment and come crashing down without warning. A recent episode of the Joe Button podcast showed just how complex a friendship can get when business is is involved. Last week's Shaking the Tree, as episode 435 was titled, featured the four podcast principals, hosts Joe Button, Rory Mall, and Parks participating in something many grown men find extremely difficult, an honest conversation about their relationships with each other. I don't know that we have really gone into our relationship with each other on the mic, but something that I really appreciate in the in uh, when I get feedback and comments for Triloquy is they feel like that we have a rapport. It sounds like that we're people who 
actually talk to each other, that we actually, you know, have have rapport and mm-hmm. and uh and and juice and and all that. How important do you think that is to Triloquy? I mean, we we've we've had the big conversations about what it might look like when um, you are no longer a co-host when I'm no longer a co-host, you know, for us to build the foundation solid enough to pass the whole right. thing on to the right. to the next host. You know, how how important when we talk about what the foundation of Triloquy is, do you feel like is that rapport, whether it's us, whether it's anyone? Oh, the OK, yeah, you, were, you were just a, um, there was something the way that I was going to answer responded to what you just said, mm-hmm. which is um it's foundational. It's the most important thing in our chemistry and the next iteration of it. We should not hold it up to this iteration of Triloquy mm. because it will have a different energy. And just because it has that different energy doesn't necessarily mean it's any better or worse. It's just different. Um, the, the the thing about the this podcast is I think that people have the opportunity to watch a middle-aged white guy change. Mm. You know, Because if you start back on Opus 8... Sure. When I interviewed Devon Gray, yep. you hear me make all kinds of mistakes. And you hear me, you know, getting lined up by Devon, who's a friend of mine, but he's not shy about getting me in order. I, I think that's the first opus where we went back and sort of just cut segments of the conversation in context just to keep it as, you know, in the ballpark as we could. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. But... um so uh, how did how did I get back from that? So you will hear me make mistakes each and every opus. And I think that there's a lot of people listening who are benefiting yeah. <laughs> from that. Yeah. But at the same time, I know that there's also people who are probably hitting that 15-second fast-forward button every time they hear my voice come on. Oh, so. stop, Scott. <laughs> well, you know, it happens. But no, to just to, to put a fine point on the whole thing, uh, it would just be a different energy in the next iteration, not necessarily bad or worse. Yeah. I'm reading here uh, more uh, from the article. This is Joe. It took me a long time to get there. As a black man raised in an emotionally stifled household, talking about my feelings never felt normal. And like many self-motivated skeptics, I never thought I needed a professional to tell me things about myself that I couldn't figure out on my own. Also, living in a hyper-masculine environment made therapy seem outlandish. Of course, you know, Joe is a big proponent of therapy now and, and and does all of that. Uh, that that part of the conversation reminds me of the therapeutic nature of just getting the feelings out, of talking things out. You've uh, you know we've covered a lot of ground on this show when it comes to personal feelings, personal dissonances. Certainly when it comes to last summer when things were really blowing up, when mm-hmm. it when it came to my termination back in Opus seventy something or, or sixty something, you know, really bearing out those feelings. Um, is that something that you consider therapeutic? Is it a good feeling to spew all of that out? Would you rather keep it in? Would you rather spew it out off the record? How, how do you feel about that aspect of this art form of podcasting? It's uncomfortable for me yeah. because a lot of times my opinions are not fully formed or um, one-sided. Yeah. And it's it can be embarrassing as I listen back. Um. Ask me the question again so I can better answer. Well, I mean, just, you know, let, let's let's go, let's get specific. One of the moments of season two, again, was my termination. Mm-hmm. You were uh, 
in a very sticky situation because as much as everyone is listening to what my next words will be, you know, on the next opus of Triloquy, they're listening to what your next words will be too. You could have made the decision, oh, well, you know, maybe it's not so safe if I you know, talk on the podcast right now. But I mean, you you really put yourself out there, you know, so even when it comes to that, in particular, you know, that that specific situation, was it better to get that out and say what you said? Would you have rather not what you said live out on the interwebs and everything forever? Yeah, it. Uh, I own it, though. I said it. Um, and I stand behind all the things that I said. I just wish that everybody who listened to the podcast heard that, <laughs> you know, so that maybe it would be a little more favorable. But that, that is an aspect of this job. Yeah, it, that here's, step out of context. Here's know? the here's the thing, though. I'm I'm not a race theorist. Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not a critical theorist. So I'm learning each week, and it's not entirely comfortable for me to admit my blind spots. Yeah. And here I am, though, and I the. The article that you cite here by from Joe Budden hit for me on a couple different levels because they talk about how um, depression or mental health isn't something that's talked about in the black community very right. much. Am I, am, am I remembering that right. right? Okay, well, I grew up in a household that was similar, hyper-masculine, to show um, uh, any sort of weakness was weak. You know, you didn't do that. Let's and, keep it true. They said it was gay, right? Right, sure. Or, you know, if uh, if you're down and depressed, we'll just snap out of it. Mm-hmm. Get over it. You got a Virginia ham under your arm. What are you? Why are you crying that you don't have yeah. bread? Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. And I, I didn't know any better, you know, so I just figured, well, I guess I better go just suck it up and go. But uh, I identify with, with that because... It wasn't something that was talked about in my household either. And you damn sure didn't talk about it with your friends because sure. as soon as somebody else came around, then they go, oh, hey, guess what Scott said? He's feeling sad about mm-hmm. something. You know, forget <laughs> about it. Well, I appreciate you're always putting yourself, your emotions out here. You've done some crying on this podcast. <laughs> You've um, done some crying on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> More than me. I think I cried maybe one time. I was getting teary. But anyway, keep keep an eye on it. Honest. Yeah. You know, again, one of the first things that came to my mind when it came to uh, developing this show is giving folks, you know, back when I was uh, on the radio over there, giving folks the the people perspective of, of who we are. It's one thing to hear me talking about what Mozart did in 1789 before he wrote X, Y, and Z and making that interesting. But I think this is you know, folks' opportunity to see our real selves and our opportunity to offer mm-hmm. our real selves. And whoever meets us in the middle there, thank you to all, you know, to, to yeah, all the folks awesome. that are there. One of the other, and, you know, and I, I do also want to make the point that um, it's, I think it's incredible that there's a podcast out there for everyone, you know. So the Joe Bunn podcast is not for everyone. It's sort of a deep cut for a lot of people when we start talking about hip-hop and black culture. I love it because it inspires me from the creator side of things. But, uh, you know, Joe and the, the co-host also put me on to music that I have forgotten about or maybe music I didn't know. Back when I was at NPR, um, I made NPR News, my NPR News debut, based on those ten. You know, everybody named ten tracks, and mm-hmm. you know, I was I was doing what I do. One of my ten tracks was the Gap Band's "Outstanding," mm-hmm. and my love for that song. You know, I, I think about the family picnics and everything that was, um, you know, that's connected to that summertime. But 
the the way that that is integrated into Joe Button's podcast is really solidified it as um, one of my favorites. But more recent, I just wanted to make sure I mentioned that. But more recently, um, Joe Button reminded me of PM Don. You know the the sound of that voice, the sound of that type of R and B that takes me right back to the to the early nineties. It takes me right back to being a kid to some of those neighborhoods. The um the the song in uh, particular, I, I would die without you, die without you. Um, you know that really especially took me back. So just a huge shout out to um, the Joe Bun podcast. If you want to check that out, maybe check out something a little different. Um, you can go uh, listen to that on Apple Podcasts. One of my inspirations. Shout out to the Need to Know podcast. You know because the, they're a part of that family. Mm-hmm. Uh, Savon and all those folks. And I had the the pleasure of being on their show before Triloquy was born to sort of you know put the idea out there that there are some of us who are trying to have some different conversations in classical music so shout out to everyone over there and shout out to um to pm don who we're going to get to uh in the second movement so let's listen to a little bit of that song die without you as we get into movement two here is it my turn to wish you were lying i didn't dream you Is it my turn to hold you by your hands? Tell you I love you and you I die without you is on the boomerangs boomerang soundtrack, you know. Is that okay, so maybe that's why it's so familiar to me, because I know that movie very, very well. All yeah. of those stranger quotes. <laughs> According to Jacqueline, you really know how to move your ass, you know? Oh, she told you I know how to move my ass in bed. <laughs> he's gay. No, and he's gay. You're not gay. Yeah. <laughs> that was a good film. We Ev- probably can't. Evan doesn't like the, the word that involves the scene I like, but y'all go back and watch it. Uh, uh, shout out to Grace Jones. She puts her, uh, her leg up on the table to reveal... Where is that cat? What is there? Anyway... Hammer time. Uh, again. <laughs> Rabbit off the trail. PM, PM Don. Okay, so first of all, shout out and rest in power to the late... Uh, Prince B, Atreo Cordis. Yep. Um, he died in 2016. Right. Um, he had diabetes for mm. a couple decades. Uh, he suffered a couple strokes, uh, lost, lost the left side of his body there near the end, oh, no. and it have a part of his uh, left leg amputated due to gangrene. Um, yeah, he died at 46. And 1991 is when I caught on to them with their first album with the, uh, the song Set Adrift on Memory Bliss, and that used a Spandau Ballet uh, hook hmm. as, as the, the basis of that. And to me, it felt like this was rap or hip hop for me. Mm. Okay, because, you know, it, it was, I didn't listen to NWA, you know, and talk about Hammer Time. MC Hammer was popular right around then. And I, yeah. you know, that wasn't exactly my vibe either, uh-huh. you know. But PM Dawn was, I heard myself in the lyrics in that it was poetic. And a little bit melancholy, where it yeah. seemed like there was a an object of affection, a person that either they went for and they didn't get, or 
they were broken up with or they didn't have the courage to talk to. So it just was all this sort of navel-gazing sort of lyrics about how great it would be to be together, but I, it, it doesn't always end up that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Set Adrift on Memory Bliss was this um, just this idea of being released and floating in the, re- in the memory of this person. Um, when you get to I Die Without You, here's a person that has been broken up with and realizes, oh my God, I fucked up. Mm-hmm. Oh, I did. And so they're almost, it sounds like he's coming to apologize knowing that he's not going to get the person back. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the song that I wanted to highlight is on the same album as I Die Without You, where he teamed up with Boy George from Culture Club. Mm. Do you remember jo- Boy of George? Of course, yeah. Okay, and the song is called More Than Likely, and it has the the signature nylon string and piano team-up that PM Dawn did mm-hmm. so well. But it kind of talks about this idea of, of not feeling like there's a place for you or there's a person for you. If you knew that there was one person out there that was counting on you, would that be enough to make everything you go through worthwhile? What's the use in trying? If all my senses say no place exists for you What's the use in holding out my arms? I couldn't find reasons if I tried to What's the use in floating? If all it does is tell you someone's under you. I kind of feel like this song just speaks to the idea of if you've got that one person, then you can then you can push through. Then you can linger through this life. Mm. When I think about PM Dawn and the aesthetic that they created through their music, how that aesthetic is connected with blues and jazz and, you know, one of the many extracts from, you know, what is American music, American classical music. I I think about um, names that I hope aren't forgotten, just lost in the ether. I feel so sorry that I could not name, you know, PM Dawn before... I was reminded of of the sound and all that. Maybe if I went back and watched Boomerang, I would be um, reminded. But as we affirm on this podcast, a different look, a non-white centered, a non-Western European centered view um, perspective on classical music, what we're calling classical music. I just hope that that aesthetic and and names uh, groups like PM Dawn survive the survive the story in in 50 years when we're talking about you know that era of r&b as this old music you know old mm-hmm. school mm-hmm. and and whatever i hope they make it there are a lot of you know let, let's let's sort of you know make a comparison to western europe of course beethoven mozart but we have the the salieri's we have the i forget the name of the man who uh had a piano competition with mozart and and that whole story you know anyway yeah, my, yeah. my my point is that there are all of these people who codify the sounds and the aesthetics that are represented in the most famous people we know mm-hmm. but we just mm-hmm. i i just hope that we can always remember as many of those you know non top 
level mega star names well, as possible. And PM Don is definitely up there. Very important American classical music there. Uh, PM Don was the first black rap group to reach number one on the Hot 100. Wow. See, with, that's, a, that's such a big deal. With Set Adrift on Memory Bliss. Yeah. And then their second album had uh, I Die Without You. And even though their other releases after that didn't get airplay, I mean, Atrell and his brother Jarrett were still recording and producing up into uh, uh, 2014. Yeah. You know, yeah. right up into near the end. Yeah, yeah. So it, it they do... It, you. It's funny that you make that comparison because I was thinking about... You know, like a composer that makes a big hit and then all of a sudden falls out of favor with the public. Sure. You know, and I think that that just happened with PM Dom because you know we were we, when we were talking with the speaker speaker geeker podcast guys. Yeah. You yeah, know that yeah. that we were talking about how this flavor of hip hop is seems to be missing on today's landscape. Mm-hmm. And if anybody listening has a band from today that's doing this flavor please send it on because i want to find out more and i'm and i'm sure they exist yeah. because for every type of podcast that exists even more types of music people sure. creating things with all the technology and everything so anyway yeah we could stand for a long time huge shout out to them the uh the piece of music i wanted to bring in um this week so first of all the louisville orchestra announced their 2021 2022 season they're calling it new beginnings now I am always going to be critical of the orchestras, period. Um, When people ask me the question, who's doing it right and all that, I I try not to highlight anyone because I think everyone, all of these orchestras could do so much better. With that being said, I think Teddy Abrams is really doing some incredible stuff down there with the Louisville Orchestra and really um, just changing what it means to go to an orchestra concert. You know, I think about playing um, with Bela Fleck down there, playing that banjo concerto and the other many other times I subbed with the Louisville Orchestra. That crowd is into it because they're into the conductor, they're into Teddy, and they trust that he's going to give them an experience that they can connect to. You cannot go to a concert down there and not on the concert here's some sort of um maple i don't know the names of the roads but maple street shuffle or Uh, or 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 the the louisville swing or you know one of these original compositions um contemporary compositions that really speak to the culture of those people so it's just so incredible anyway um among the um composers being featured in this new beginning season is a young woman named kamani bridges and i'm so proud of her i first met kimani in collaboration with the american composers forum for a, a a project they had called next notes so every Every year they take high school um, age composers and, you know, they have to uh, write a piece of music and it's this whole thing. Anyway, so Kamani Bridges was one of those composers uh, from Louisville, a young black woman from uh, Louisville. I forget what we talked about. If you search YouTube, our conversation is there. It wasn't, you know, my content. That's Mm -hmm. American Composers Mm -hmm. Mm for. But anyway, I was just so excited to um, see her name listed. and how excited her parents must be and all of her friends. Can you imagine going to the mall and, you know, and, and you know, my friend is having a piece of music premiered by the Louisville Orchestra. It's whatever, you know, big deal. <laughs> you know, where's the soda fountain or whatever they do at the mall these days? I don't know, Gen Z. But anyway, I wanted to highlight a piece of music of hers called Gray. So Kamani Bridges is a, a flutist. And when I spoke with her uh, last year for Next Notes, the piece of music she highlighted was this flute ensemble work that she um, talked about. She said she was watching a, a war documentary and just thinking about the gunpowder and the smoke and all of you know that image 
uh, specifically inspired this piece of music called Gray. So you have a fluid ensemble that that sounds really blurry and really, uh, you know, contemporary. I don't know if the piece of music that's premiering by the Louisville Orchestra is going to have that flavor on it. But just to give you a taste of what the young Kamani Bridges is doing, here's a little bit of that piece of music, Gray, for flute ensemble. Kids are gonna be all right. You've you said you that on this show before, and I feel that. I'm so excited. For one downbeat, I'm sorry that I'm not remembering the opus number, but uh for, for one downbeat, we used um an, another one of those uh young students going off about how you know all American music is black music, and you know, I think he said everything you listen to, no matter if it's uh Taylor Swift, or I forget the names he says, but so they are they are there. The, the the Gen Zers, the high school age kids, the kids um, in undergraduate now, they are there. They're having these conversations. The orchestras ain't going to make it if they, if don't, they, don't, if they don't do something right. because those folks right. are coming. The, in 40, 50 years, let's think way ahead, 60, 70 years, these people are the folks who, go, who are going to be left to be the donors. I'm going to be dead even. You know, These are the people, the older folks, whose money y'all are going to try to get. So do the work now in making sure that those institutions speak to these folks. The Louisville Orchestra is letting that energy in. I want to see that in, in so many more places. It's yeah. exciting. I'm excited by it. I'm, I'm geeked. Um, but uh, to get us into the third movement here, uh, I wanted to tell you a little bit about um, Mission Commission. So uh, a lot of people you know, don't really understand the concept of what it is to write a piece of music, the process and you know, what, what the emotion, all, all the story sure, that uh, sure. goes into it. So the folks over at uh, the Miller Theater at, uh, at Columbia uh, decided to put uh, together a podcast called Mission Commission. It says here on the website, a podcast demystifying the process of how classical music gets made. It follows the creative journey of three composers as they create vibrant new works of classical music. The host of Mission Commission is Melissa Smay and one of the uh, producers, the producer on the show is uh, Golda Arthur. What did you think about getting that host and producer point of view? Over the, over the course of Triloquy, I've really learned you know, how important a producer is and the role of a producer. And Golda, who is the um, producer of Mission Commission, really seemed to you know, be excited about the work, at some points a little overwhelmed by the work as we all can get with the podcast. 100%. It was fun. It, it was fun getting the host and producer. It was great to have some shop talk. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like, um, oh, wow, what do you do when this situation arrives? And, yeah. uh, you know, things like that. But Golda and I were are very similar in our approaches to things in that, you know, she's a journalist. And so uh, very much like with my theater background, we're, we're looking at the podcast as a story arc. Right. You know, or, uh, the, the character arc, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I guess our character arc would be over the 100 opuses right. and yada, sure. yada, yada. But um, the the most interesting thing was hearing how different her role 
as producer was than mine. You know, yeah. she's she's doing a whole host of different things, and that just goes to show you that the producer role is different in every project. Yeah, yeah. Well, when a big fancy theater decides to collaborate with Triloquy because we aren't selling, but when they collaborate, oh, we'll have all sorts of team people. Somebody's going to be bringing me coffee right now. I, could, I would love. <laughs> I, I have milk. my hand out. I wish somebody was here to put something in it. <laughs> anyway. Would you make I, me another wine? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, I appreciated uh, hearing from Melissa because something that I have really had to focus a lot on over the course of Triloquy is learning about people and, and preparing for interviews. And um, I think it's really cool that she had the opportunity to really live with these, not, you know, for real, like live with, but, you know, live with these composers, these stories for, you know, a, a long period of time and really dive in mm -hmm. uh, to what uh, they're doing. Courtney Bryan is one of the uh, featured composers on Mission Commission. I had the pleasure of featuring uh, her on Triloquy a few weeks back. Uh, Mission Commission also features Marcos Balter and composer Augusta Reed Thomas. So I thought we would transition into uh, my conversation, uh, our conversation with Melissa Smay and Golda Arthur with a little music by Augusta Reed Thomas. It's a tune called Love Twitters. Do you love Twitter, Scott? You gave up on Facebook. Do you love Twitter? <laughs> I don't know if no I don't know comment. if that's what she meant by that title, but <laughs> that's what I thought of. Anyway, here's a here's a little bit of love Twitters. And here's our conversation with the host and producer of Mission Commission, Melissa Smay and Golda Arthur. You know, I'm a fairly recent adoptee of podcasts, and we listen to them a lot when we drive um, in the car on summer vacation. And I, like Song Exploder is like my single most favorite podcast ever. Um, and obviously, it was a real inspiration for this one. Um, and I'm just a huge fan of every single thing about that podcast. What about you, Golda? Yeah, my relationship to podcasts uh, goes back to radio <laughs> because I was in radio for a very long time. There's a big leap, I think, between radio and podcasting. And I made that leap, I want to say back in 2014, I think it was. Um, and it felt uh, it felt quite risky and quite dangerous. And I decided that I did it. Uh, and I've been in podcasting ever since, basically. So and I, I do listen. My, my listening is very mood driven. Uh, my listening, like everybody else, uh, has changed since the pandemic because I've lost my commute, um, and some and sometimes my editor brain goes into overdrive. So you know, it's very hard for me to have a relaxed listen to a podcast. Yeah. Um, one day that'll happen. I love. It. <laughs> you describe it as uh, risky and dangerous. I kind of want to go into that a little bit. Golda, what have you learned since the birth of Mission Commission about podcasts or, or more specifically podcasting? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been a news journalist for 25 years. And, you know, news is not a place where you take risks and where you do innovative things. And I sort of um, had a change in my own career path um, around the same time that I met Melissa and the fabulous team at Miller. And so the, you know, the reason that podcasting for me was risky all along, the reason this particular podcast was a brilliant risk for me is because I think the Miller team came up with an idea that was so innovative 
of that I really had to scratch my head for a while. Um, I said yes immediately. And then I thought, wait a second, how how are we going to pull this off? Like, how is this actually going to work? Um, and so that's the risk. I think anything innovative is a risk. But I feel like they were all going on some gut instinct to connect them to their people. And I went with my gut instinct in that way to make mission commission. So um, so that's, that's kind of the risk element. I think I learned that uh, a lot of people are interested in different things from podcasting than what I was used to. And I was quite pleased to see that. I was quite pleased that podcasting could mean different things to different people. What about from the hosting seat, Melissa? I wonder if you feel that risk or, or danger in this new field. No, you know, I have to say I didn't. I think one of the, uh, an early decision we made that was the single best decision we made was to work with a really experienced podcast producer. Because for us at Miller, you know, we're experts at producing classical music concerts. We're really good at commissioning new work and supporting the development of that work. And we always work with people who are experts and we're not, we do not, we're not experts in podcasting. And so having, um, having found Golda and the opportunity to work with Golda helped us enormously. And, you know, it's funny talking about the, the kind of transition from radio to podcast a very, very long time ago, we used to have a weekly radio show for Miller theater called live from Miller theater on WKCR, which is the campus radio station. And for about a year, um, Lauren Cognetti and I, who's on our, on our producing team for this podcast, we co-hosted it and it was so fun. <laughs> it was so fun to have a weekly radio show. Um, and I never thought of myself as a host. You know, I have to confess when I have to get up on stage and make a pre-concert introduction, I, it makes me nervous every time. You'd think that I'm going out to be the performer, right? But somehow the microphone and the intimate setting and that you're not, you know, you're not normally face-to-face -face with the audience made it a lot easier. So the hosting, I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, that's a really good point. Scott, I, I would say that hosting uh, Triloquy has definitely, you know, there there won't be a pre-concert discussion that makes me nervous anymore or, <laughs> or, a, or a panel discussion because this is what we do mm. every week. <laughs> Yeah. No, I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull from my interview with violinist Pincus Zuckerman. He said, if you're not just a little bit nervous before you go out there, then hang it up. Sure. And I and you know, Garrett and I, when we press record on our sessions, we're both like, okay, here we go. <laughs> What's gonna come out this time? And so I wear a little bit of a Melissa hat and a little bit of a Golda hat in this instance because I'm part co-host and my role as a producer is mainly putting everything together in the digital workstation. You know, you're, um, I use Ableton, but it's the equivalent of gar your garage band, which a lot of people use. Um, but I imagine that Glenn, uh, Golda, your skills <clears throat> are different as a producer in, in your podcast. It, a producer's role is probably different case by case, talk a little bit about um, your skills and what you would consider necessary to bring to podcasting. Yeah. And I mean, it's funny you should mention this because I was having a conversation with someone um, uh, who's 25 years old and who is considering a career as an audio producer. And the first thing she said to me was, you know what, the thing that's stopping me from going forward is I don't know what 
a producer does. And I think mm-hmm. uh, that is the point. <laughs> um, I think producers do like a bunch of different things. Uh, I'm not a very technical producer. Um, and like my technical skills are seriously so limited. Um, I do have like on Mission Commission, we had a fabulous audio engineer. Shout out to Eric Gomez, um, who who knows what, what my weaknesses are technically. Um, but I think my strength is uh, more on the editorial or the content front. So mm. I'll talk about what I did for Mission Commission in my role as producer. And that went from a 30,000 foot view of, you know, the, the show concept, like what what is this and why is it? And how will it be um, to, you know, some of the nitty gritty of like uh, once Melissa's conversation and Melissa's tracking was recorded, I would sit there with a the session, cut everything up into little bits and mm-hmm. make it a story. Right. So uh, a little bit of that narrative arc brain, that editorial brain, a little bit of the technical production side of it. Um, you know, everybody on the Miller team, Melissa, Adrian. Lauren Taylor were super helpful from the music side of it because uh, I I don't know a lot about um, classical music and I think that was an interesting lens as well to have because some of the questions that I asked also um, helped me shape the episodes in a way that I think became a, 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 a very accessible thing for people to like step into this yeah. into this world um, so it really runs the gamut of um, of doing like a bunch of different things. I mean, I'm, I was also in this role, I was also the person that kept the trains running on time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here is how like everything has to keep to this momentum. Um, right. And we made it. We made it, Melissa. It happened. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I have a, a little bit of a similarity there in that my background is theater. So I, I think of things in a story arc as well. And Melissa, when you talk about the intimacy that podcasting brings, when Garrett and I were first envisioning what Triloquy would be, the idea was to get comfortable chairs, low light, maybe a drink, you know, a mixed drink or something, and to try to pry out, or not pry out, but coax out the really intimate conversation. Because we thought, you know, the best talk you have is when you're laid back, your shoes off, you know, and and you're just going for it. Yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly right. And it's funny because the part of one of our one of our inspirations for Mission Commission, the podcast, you know, we have a, a series at Miller called Composer Portraits, which is a concert series where it's focused on the work of a single composer. And um, in the middle of the concert, there's an onstage discussion with the composer. And so it's an opportunity for audiences to have heard some music by the composer. Then there's an intermission. And then a conversation with the composer and the audience can hear from that person in their own words about their music, about their life, and then and then the rest of the of the concert. And I hear from audiences all the time how that's one of their most favorite aspects of those concerts. And to be able to mm. have heard some music and then hear, you know, first person accounts from the creative practitioner is so important. And so I loved the idea that we could expand that into a longer format, that podcasting would give us that opportunity. And, you know, we didn't know in the beginning 
you know, how, how we would bring all of those, the three composers together, right? Would there be an episode dedicated to one composer? Would, you know, in the end, we went with all of the composers are featured in all of the episodes, but the opportunity to kind of take the, the kernel of what's so beautiful about those onstage discussions and share it in the longer format that's afforded by a, a series of podcasts was really wonderful. You mentioned two things that I kind of want to dig into a little bit more, Melissa, the idea of an audience, first of mm -hmm. all, and then your use of that phrase longer format. I think when a lot of people are developing podcasts, certainly when we were uh, giving birth to Triloquy, those were two ideas that kept going around. Who's the audience? How do we want to engage the audience? And I think equally important, Scott, you can certainly speak to it, the issue of the longer format. There are so mm -hmm. many 15, 20, you know, 22 minute podcasts out there, which, which is great. How did you approach um, those questions? Were you afraid of the longer format that it might be a little too much for certain audiences? Yeah, you know, it's funny. So audiences for us, you know, audiences always almost come first, right? Because we care about connecting the work with audiences. And so we think a lot about audiences and you know, we have a lot of information about our typical Miller Theater in-person concert going audience because, you know, they buy tickets. We know information about them, who they are, where they're coming from. And we knew that some of those people would be the audience for our podcast, but we also really, really wanted to connect with with podcast audiences and people who didn't know Miller Theater, you know, and who maybe weren't, you know, interested or thought they weren't interested in classical music. So we we had a lot of conversations about that. Those were some of the earliest questions that Golda was asking us because obviously who you're making the podcast for you know, defines what the podcast is that you are making. Mm -hmm. So that we, we spent so much time thinking about that and considering that. Um, and then in terms of the length, you know, I wasn't, that wasn't a factor that was so, it's not that it wasn't important for me, but I always had the sense from the beginning that the, the, the duration of the episodes would reveal itself to us, like that the material and the story that that would come to us. But I, I'd be interested to hear from Golda on that because I imagine that, <laughs> that that was a consideration of hers from the beginning in a way that maybe it wasn't for me. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big believer and I heard the composers say this in so many different ways on the show. I'm a big believer that uh, in my case, the story will come to me. I just have I just have faith that if I kind of just line up all my ducks, the story will come to me and I have to trust what I hear, and it will lead me. Um, and I think that's what I've kind of learned. You know, the experience part of it comes in just being able to be tune in to your own to your own gut and to be led by the story. <laughs> Having said that, I do remember there was a moment where um, I was like so in the weeds of episode four that I realized. Once I make episode four, I will have made four, five, and six. And oh my God, this is so much material. <laughs> I was lost. I was so I was so lost in it. And you know, that realization was really close to overwhelming. Um, because I also take seriously, you know, as you say, it is an intimate medium. It it you are literally the voice inside someone's head in this medium. And I take seriously the things that our guests and Melissa tell us the listeners um and i care for those things um and so when you have to make those editing decisions of like well what doesn't get to be in here uh, we mm -hmm. talked about this as well or, or we'll talk about it on, on the podcast you have to toggle between one side of your brain and another and that was incredibly hard 
actually, because there was, a, you know, there's a lot of sort of good material. But at the same time, I was aiming for these episodes to roughly sit in the 30 minute mark. And I know you can go much longer, you can go much shorter, but you know, we were giving some some idea of consistency across the series um, as well. And there were many times where I thought, why 30 minutes? It doesn't have to be 30 minutes. It could be 50. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was like, don't be ridiculous. It can't be 50 minutes on this one. The previous one was 25, whatever. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's it. these are the, these were hard decisions to make. But, you know, one is guided by the light or whatever. Well, Golda, coming from broadcasting, you know how important it is to hit the post at the top of the hour. You know, you have to be able, you know, you have to stop talking at a certain point. And I've always thought some of the bigger media companies that are trying to sell to networks and individual stations and they hit 30 or 60 minutes so that they fit within the clock. The, it gets so highly produced that now it's not really a podcast. It's a show, Right. And Garrett and I have found that as long as the content is engaging and you have some sort of a rapport with your with your listener, they'll go with you. They'll, you know, they'll they'll follow along, don't you think? I think that's a really good point. And you're pointing to something that's happening in the podcasting industry right now that is pretty new, which is that networks are taking paying so much attention to podcasting. I think another thing might play into into it there, certainly in New York City, where everybody is on a, you know, some form of public transport to get to work back in the before times, you know, the average commute is 45 minutes. Um, and so I've heard it said from like marketing folks and that kind of thing, that 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 45 minute time slot, or for example, if you go for a walk, sure, some people walk two hours a day, probably not in New York City. Um, <laughs> so it's like that, that's like, it feels like a sort of a sweet spot somewhere between 30 and, and 45. And that shorter podcasts are now coming about because people are just li listening differently, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's a really great point about, you know, hitting the post, fitting into some notion of how long something should be what i said earlier of like moving from radio to podcasting the bit that was exciting and felt dangerous is that there are no rules yeah or different people will tell you different things this is my thing there are conventions conventions that folks follow until some clever person comes along and breaks the convention and makes a new rule mm -hmm. and they have some level of credibility or money or expertise or whatever behind them but there are no rules and so that is exciting and at the same time a little scary because it's like well if you can make anything what are you going to make and what's going to guide you in in making that thing yeah i mean I, I think the the we can have the discussion of length for a long time because you know one of the podcasts that inspired triloquy you know i still listen to and it comes out twice a week and some of its episodes are over three hours and that gets me excited i mean i, I think about all of the content all of the discussion uh that must be there but it certainly um is is a balance one, one thing before we move on from this um gold that i wanted to affirm and, and something you said i talked to a lot of um professionals and consultants when it comes to uh, podcasting and something that I've heard over and over again 
in a weird way is that when we when it comes to humps of a of uh, producing a podcast, getting past episode six is a hump, and getting past epi- the next hump is getting past episode one hundred. This is something that I've heard from a, a lot of people, so I think it's really interesting that you affirm at episode four, five, six, you're kind of feeling like this is a lot of work because <laughs> it it certainly is. Um, when it comes to mission commission specifically, and we've talked a little bit about. Um, uh, about audience and about breaking rules and how there are no rules when it comes to podcasts. That may be the case, but when certain institutions take on podcasts, there usually are rules that are sort of superimposed on the project. Melissa, I wonder if you can speak to um, both the privilege and the responsibility of hosting a podcast that isn't independent but has the backing of an institution. Hmm, that's a great question. I mean, we obviously, you know, we wanted it to reflect. Certainly, we wanted it to reflect our you know, core values at Miller, and for people to see it as a recognizably Miller Theater production. I think that's really important. Um, and thinking about the broader landscape of, you know, of the university, Columbia University, of which Miller Theater is a part. There are a lot of university podcasts mm-hmm. um, and a lot of really great ones. So we wanted to make sure. I mean, with the same criteria, we wanted to make sure that ours would be good. Um, that it would be putting out something that we would feel proud about. And and also too, I mean, the kind of guiding principle for my programming at Miller, because we're in New York City, is that I want to contribute to the landscape. So we need to be putting out something there that you can't get anywhere else, right? With this kind of internal mantra that there's no advantage in having the second best string quartet series or the third best <laughs> sure. recital series, right? Because no one, no one is interested in that. Yeah. So the idea of commissioning new work and connecting audiences to that new work and supporting um, composers and musicians and ensembles is, is just really at the heart of what we do. And so, you know, the pandemic comes, our stage is dark and what are we going to do? And the idea, you know, we thought about the idea of a podcast. It wasn't, it wasn't a new idea, but being on pause from producing live concerts gave us an opportunity to explore it. Um, And so that idea that we wanted to do something that, was both unique and represented the core of what we do. I think that's the kind of institutional frame that I applied to it that was important to me. Yeah, uh, you've inspired something in my mind. I think a a show called The Second Best Podcast might be a a pretty good title, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Love it. Right, because who wants to listen to The Second Best Podcast, right? Or or like if you got like really niche about it. So of course, because we got excited, you know, we've never made a podcast. So we started looking at like charts and you could see how you're trending um, and like, you know, in concert production, that doesn't really exist. There isn't like a billboard chart mm-hmm. for like live concerts, but there is for this. So you, know, you could have like second best music interview podcast <laughs> format or something. <laughs> yeah. I think we were last year, Scott, what did I say? I think we were 19th best music p- podcast in Austria or something like, like the, the weird, <laughs> the weird facts that you can uh, pull out. Right. But uh, also keep in mind that we are banned in Korea. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that seems like a badge of honor, though, exactly. right? Exactly. And, and one of those things, you know, when we... It's such an untapped market. Right, when we talk about that <laughs> institutional connection or not, one of uh, my and Scott's approaches is to, you know, as the name suggests, Triloquy Trill, you know, to just speak honestly. There is profanity, yeah. you know, on Triloquy. Triloquy <laughs> is not safe for work. You know, we talk about cannabis and, and all sorts of uh, other things. Uh, Golda, I, I wonder if... 
you know, that is something you think about. Is there a separation between, you know, the the uh, content you would produce maybe for your friends or family versus something as big as Mission Commission? Um. Well, that's an interesting question. Let me think about that for a second. I mean, in general, if I can put an E explicit rating on every episode that I make, I consider that sort of all in the day's work mm -hmm. and the job. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's sort of, you know, what's appropriate to the story? Um, and that should be, uh, and what's appropriate to the audience that you're aiming for, sure. right? Um, so, for example, with Mission Commission, talking about friends and family, I discovered that my mother listens to classical music. And I was like, what? When, when did that happen? I, I just didn't know this. She listens to CBC Radio 2 in Canada um, to some of their classical music shows as well. And she is thrilled with Mission Commission. And she's never really, you know, every time I said, Mom, I made a new podcast, she's like, honey, that's so great. I'll make time to listen. <laughs> <laughs> On Mission Commission, she's like, just tuned in to every word. So I think, you know, whatever you make, should I try and make it appropriate for the audience that um, uh, that I'm programming for. You know, the only thing is to to let folks know up ahead i'm a big fan of that level of signposting of like hey here's what we're going to talk about it's going to get this or that or the other just a heads up and then everyone's a grown-up and uh can can listen or not yeah another big factor in producing this sort of media um like triloquy mission commission is guest based you know you 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 select guests and uh, the, the the three composers in in your case and and go from there one of my challenges or or a charge that i put on for myself when it comes to selecting guests is having um, more women than men. You know, we're, we're, we're two men who host this podcast. I want there to be a woman's voice on more of them than not. You know, I, that's something that I actively think about. What were some of the um, active uh, discussions or goals when it came to choosing the composers that you featured on Mission Commission? Sure. Yeah, no, um, that's a great, that's a great question. I mean, so taking them in reverse order, um, all three composers, um, Augusta Reed Thomas, Courtney Bryan, and Marcos Falter were composers that I had worked with before at Miller Theater um, in, in different capacities. Um, hadn't commissioned work from all three of them before, um, but I'd worked with all three of them before and was excited to work with them again. And knowing, knowing that we were undertaking a new project and a new medium for us, having collaborators with whom we already had an existing relationship seemed like a good recipe to be successful. And I had the sense also that they um, would be good, like that, you know, it would be interesting to talk to them. People would be interested in hearing what they had to say. And then from there, you know, kind of a, an embrace of diversity in all of the ways that that could be interpreted is really important to me for all of my programming at Miller, right? I mean, we have to acknowledge and reckon with the history of like European classical music as being the province of white men and all of the baggage and um, unpacking of that baggage that needs to happen. And so when I first became director of Miller Theater in 2009, like you, one of my kind of quiet principles was that I felt like we needed to have more women composers featured in the series, right? But at the time, I didn't I didn't want to be the woman director who was programming women composers, right? Because that is just not interesting. It should be about their work and that the work is great and not, oh, but, and that it's a lady, um, which <laughs> right. is just not, it's not good, right? right? 
And then, but then, you know, also too, thinking about, um, you know, thinking about where we sit at Columbia University, which has an incredible department of music with, you know, a hundred year history. It's a very well-respected department, but it's also the home of uptown music and that idea of uptown music and downtown music and the formal and stylistic dictates that that came to be understood to mean, um, and then, and then also what it meant was excluded and was not part of that. I think it's really important to acknowledge that. And so, you know, I want to feature composers from a wide range of all of all of the isms, mm-hmm. right? Minimalism and, you know, all of that is important and a, a wider range of countries, like having com- the first composer from Sweden on our series, you know, all of that was just so important and having that all together on the Miller stage. Um, just felt important and you know more and more having a wider embrace of the kinds of music that can be featured like we we worked with um with the composer and sound artist Anaya Lockwood in our last season before in the before Mm -hmm. times um and you know 10 years ago or 15 years ago that's not a composer who probably would have been featured in the composer portrait series and you know like you had said about duration of your work if the audience has a rapport with it they're going to show up for it they're interested in it like audiences are always so much more adventurous Mm. than some gatekeepers give them credit for being um so that's a that's a kind of long and rambling no, and um but but i was gonna say th- yeah. thank you for so much for saying that audiences are more adventurous than sometimes you know e- even folks like us tend to think yeah yep. um that's right you you actually just answered the question that i was going to ask so uh i want to <laughs> i want to build on that idea yeah. i mean you you've pointed out that there is a thirst for this sort of podcast that you're doing so what about listener feedback? So what are people saying about your guests and the pieces that they play? And how do you handle the um, challenging <laughs> responses? Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, I mean, so the good news is that I've had a ton of experience with that in our live concerts, right? So there's always going to be someone who doesn't like it. So, but this is actually, this is interesting. So there's always going to be someone who doesn't like it, right? So, but something that's extremely important to me, and I've even got up on the stage in a pre-concert welcome and said it, it's okay not to like it. Like, it's okay not to like it, right? One of the virtues of that composer portrait series, unlike some kind of traditional mainstream programming where you'll it's featured, it's focused on the ensemble and you'll have works by different composers, right? And so there might be one piece of new music on a program like that and it may or may not have the appropriate context for the reception of that work. And so an audience will say, yeah, I heard that composer so-and-so and I didn't like it. So what I would hope is that having hearing a full evening of that composer's work, you might still hate it. That's okay, great. You don't have to like everything. You don't love every restaurant that you go to. Um, but that you want to be curious and adventurous and try it and have more information upon which to make that judgment. So, um, so um, I, I say to constructive feedback, I say, bring it on. We're happy to have it. What's your relationship to that idea, Golda, as someone who isn't as uh, front facing in the podcasting sphere? They, they might not be upset with what you said, but <laughs> maybe one of their complaints is tied to something that you have done. Yeah, I mean, oh, I always take this stuff personally. (laughs) 
And then I have to like, get a grip, Golda, get a grip, you know, um, I, it, not with Mission Commission, because I think broadly everybody I know who's heard it uh, has just, you know, told me how much they liked it. But with other podcasts, I mean, I always give listeners a way to let the show know how they are feeling about it and what they think of what we just did. So uh, I used to run a tech show Mm -hmm. and people had very specific thoughts Mm -hmm. on the things that we were doing and they would write to us regularly to say, you guys kind of screwed this one up. You've got completely the wrong end of the stick. Or uh, I love this show so much. I, you know, it's become part of my listening habit. Um, when they take to leaving you a public review on a platform, like an Apple review or something, uh, they're not interested in discussion and they're not interested in any back and forth. Uh, they're not interested in building a relationship with the show. Because I always see that there's a feedback loop in a community of people is how I mm. approach it. And so if they're going to just give you one star in an Apple review uh, or something like that and tell you what they think, they just want to have this, their say and kind of move on. Um, their opinion is more important than their engagement mm. with the work, I think. And that's fine with me. And like Melissa says, not everybody has to like everything. I think the thing is, in podcasting in particular, podcasters uh, put a lot of themselves into what they do. Somehow the work is always personal and so how to deal with the feedback that that mm-hmm. comes comes your way again is probably an art that i'm still that i'm still struggling with but i love to have an ongoing conversation with listeners one way or the other because i write back to all the listeners who write to me to say all the things yeah and and we've certainly gotten all the things right scott mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the the whole spectrum of <laughs> yeah. uh, so you know, you know what's real? Oh, I, I think one interesting Venn diagram point that we hit, we've gotten praise and really upset emails from the same people. You know, right. there's, a, there's a few people who have written from both directions. So I I think that if you are able to bring people along through the stuff that they don't like, then then you're onto something. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That that's what I tell myself anyway. How's it working? <laughs> so what is the ultimate goal or mission of Mission mm-hmm. Commission when in, you know, in 50 years when, you know, somebody is coming back and thinking about Mission Commission, what do you hope mm-hmm. they will have considered um, the, the end of the work, the actual impact that the, that the podcast is trying to make? Oh, I love that question. Um, I mean, I hope at the end of the day... It, I, so I'm kind of a nerd about it, but I want people to love classical music, right? I love it. It's done so much for me in my life, and I want other people to love it as much as I do. So that would be an amazing takeaway, right? Whether they liked the individual pieces or not, or whether they liked the individual composers or not, that they could connect with something that one of the composers said on a human level and somehow felt that this, you know, that music is available to them and is meant for them, that that would make me really happy. Yeah, and I think that is the the goal of so many of of classical music pod, so called classical music podcasts, as, as I say, um, because I think about the ways in which different corners of the industry can play a role in that ultimate goal of you know the the survival of classical music. You know, orchestras have a very specific you know duty, opera houses, at, uh, administration, you know, and then of course mm-hmm. there is is podcasting. What what about you, Golda? Yeah. What what do you hope? 
um, that people ultimately um, take away from mission commission as far as that um, rapport, proximity, uh, engagement of what we call classical music? Well, um, I, I'm certainly with Melissa on that kind of that relationship and understanding of classical music. But I, I thought that um, it was insightful also in, um, in talking about the creative journey period, the creative journey as it applies to any act of creation. Um, and I had this weird moment where it, when I was, as I mentioned earlier, drowning in episode four, five, and six, I just thought, oh, wait, episode three was about the moment that I'm in right now. So, you know, it's like, it, I think, you know, to hear those three composers and Melissa draw them out on this, talk about it is a journey, you know, it has its ups and its downs and its dark moments and the elation of any any one thing. And I think that I understand my creative journey, my creative process, how I work creatively and how to manage myself that much better after having uh, heard Mission Commission. I hope that other folks um, find that to be useful as well. Yeah. And when, when it comes to the way podcasting impacts um, other projects and other things, I think a lot about, you know, over these 100 weeks, Scott, of <laughs> producing Triloquy, when I do pre-concert talks or, or non-podcast interviews, I'm steering away from the, well, how did you get started or where you, you know, the, the, those sorts of questions and really digging more um, into the person. Melissa, I wonder if working on uh, Mission Commission has changed your perspective on some of the work that you'll do moving forward outside of podcasting. Yeah, that's a great question. Um... What, what has been great, I mean, so what was interesting about the process of commissioning these three composers <clears throat> was kind of that we were asking them both to make a piece in a short time frame and then talk about it in real time, like at the same time. And for all three of them, that was a little bit out of the comfort zone. It's unusual. Like, you know, some creative practitioners don't want to talk about their creative practice and certainly not when they're actively engaged mm -hmm. in it. So that was, that was a stretch. That was hard. Um, and then... Um, we decided pretty early on that the goal, like the finished product would be a piece for the podcast and not a piece for a concert stage. I would love one day to be able to have those pieces live on a concert stage, but we took the decision that it would be for the podcast. And so for Marcos Balter, particularly, it allowed him to create a different kind of piece than he normally would have created. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that kind of, kind of opened up like a new room in my brain to be thinking about when we're commissioning new work and what that can mean um, for when we hopefully return to times when we can bring people back. But then also, you know, now that we're in this digital realm, I, I kind of like to stay here, like to try to figure out how to do both, right? Because it affords us opportunities that we don't have with analog in-person concert experiences. So we're in the kind of just figuring all of that out. I know what you mean by uh, wanting to stay. Uh, every time I have to put on pants and actually go outside, it feels like such an exercise. You know, sitting in traffic <laughs> seems like so much more after we spent so much time working from home, right? <laughs> yeah, no question. <laughs> well, um, yeah. will we see more types of diverse content from the Miller Theater? Has, has this inspired other projects that are coming down the line? 
Yeah, I mean, so we we also did so when we also in addition to in addition to the podcast, we made a series of of um, filmed concerts called Live from Columbia, and the, they were filmed um, in in an, kind of an iconic campus location. Um, and you know, the goal for both of them was to be able to put musicians and composers to work in a time when stages were dark. That was a really big a really big uh, focus for us. And we've had interest from other departments on campus who are kind of interested in saying, hey, would you like to bring those concerts to our space? Like, we'd be interested in having you. Um, and so trying to figure out how that could work. And like, you know, I wish we had a crystal ball to know what the audience trends will be mm-hmm. like. Will people, you know, will, some people will come back in person. Will some people continue watching on the screen? I don't know, right? Like, I hear from people, some people that they hate it, that the audio quality is terrible and they don't want to listen to a concert on a computer screen or even on their TV. Yeah. But I mean, but our our viewership numbers are really good, and they're more than they could ever be in our six hundred and eighty eight seat exactly. theater. So that it seems like we'd be remiss if we didn't try to retain that. And we're getting you know geographically, we're getting people that couldn't physically come to us. So that's a big puzzle. It'll be it'll be interesting to see how kind of in within the field of what we do, where the best practice models are and what that what that looks like going forward. Yeah. Scott, did you have a did you have anything? I don't have anything to add and I don't want to be that guy who realizes he hasn't said anything for about 15 minutes and all of a sudden makes the meeting go longer than it should. <laughs> I mean and and again that's that's the art of uh, of of podcasting just you know sometimes sitting back and sitting back and listening to to what's yeah. going on. Uh w- one one final thing that I wanted to throw out, you know, the the New York Times uh feature that we shared, you know, that that headline of classical music podcast flourishing at last, Golda. I, I wonder, you know, we, we started by talking about, you know, our relationship with with podcasting. What, what was your reaction to that? I mean, and and and, and I'll, I'll frame it by saying this, you know, as grateful as we were for that feature, you know, there are so many other classical music podcasts that have been around longer than Triloquy that um, that weren't mentioned. So when I see the phrase "at last," I I sort of can't help but to think, well, where have you been, though? I, I wonder what your reaction to that was, Golda. Well, listen, I'm so new to this whole to this whole world. Uh, there was, it was a couple of reactions, like very pleased to have Mission Commission yeah. in there. I was very curious about the other podcasts uh, in there. A little confused about the at last because I was like, well, something I don't understand here. I need I need more context. Um, so I don't know that I had the right kind of framing to to fully take in that thing. But I was just like. Mm-hmm. Mom, mission commissions in the New York. <laughs> exactly. What 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 about you, uh, 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 Melissa? What, what what do you think about the idea of classical music podcast flourishing at last? And I, and maybe if I can tack anything on to that, are they here to stay? Are are, are classical music podcasts, from your perspective, now officially a part of the classical music ecosystem? For sure, right? There's no. Of course they are. Of course they are. Yeah, the at last is interesting. I mean, yeah, because because so much of what we do at Miller theater is, is different than what other more mainstream producers and presenters are doing. Um, I guess it, I, I wasn't surprised to see it. I feel like it's like, hooray, welcome, glad you're here. Like, and kind of acknowledging that, that what we're doing is, is different. Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, kind of welcome to this, 
to this realm. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna um, we're gonna segue out with a little uh, music by Marcos Balter just to give the the audience a taste of some of the things that y'all are exploring over there at Mission Commission. But for folks who um, may not know, how can they find Mission Commission? How can they check out this podcast? We have an amazing website, missioncommissionpodcast.com. And um, every uh, the episodes are there as they're uploaded. And then we'll have all three of the finished pieces available on May 18 um, at the conclusion of the final episode. So everyone will be able to hear the three commissioned works in their entirety right on that website. That's awesome. Golda, I, I know, you know, we've returned to, you know, the challenges of episodes four, five, and six. Are you, are you, are you shooting toward 100, 200, 1,000? yes i mean yes let's just say yes it's all coming Marcos Balter has an aesthetic that's different, very contemporary, and I appreciate it. I, I think if you uh, go through and just search uh, the name Marcos Balter on YouTube or, or Spotify, you'll find all sorts of sounds. And I wanted to make sure that you got a little bit of that more uh, contemporary sound to Marcos Balter there, just to affirm the many different things that are happening in so-called classical music and on the podcast Mission Commission. So huge thanks to Melissa and Golda for uh, joining us. A huge congratulations again to Courtney Bryan, Marcos Balter, and Augusta Reed Thomas for the feature. It must feel good to have a podcast framed around you. It's one thing for us to feature folks. Mm. It wouldn't it be something if there was a podcast about making podcasts? <laughs> or is that too meta? <laughs> we should be on it right. <laughs> if, if they if they make that show. Before we get um, into the triloquy, again, really leaning into the, um, I hate to say A-roll, and B roll, but I'll, I'll I'll use that phrase here. You know, the A roll on a show, folks in front of the camera, in front of the mic. The B roll, folks more behind. When I think about that duality, we were talking yesterday um, at your birthday. Happy belated birthday! <laughs> it was it was Scott's birthday. Everybody, yeah. happy birthday, Scott! Anyway, at your um, birthday party, we were talking about Will Smith and DJ. Jazzy Jeff. We were talking about Salt and Pepper and Spinderella. I'm thinking about when you were uh, talking about the movie that takes place in Florida with all of the black leaders, Malcolm X and One Night and, in Miami and and all those people. You know, uh, Muhammad Ali had the coach. You know, like it's it's always that that sort of thing. Looking forward to uh, looking forward to the next 100 opuses of Triloquy. Um, how do you feel about leaning into that? A and B thing. Are you are you ready to be even more B? Have you become more comfortable Listen, um, as an I, A, depending I, upon the the dual role that you've had to play? You I'll know? go ahead and lay this out that I I have been far more involved on the microphone than I ever imagined <laughs> that yeah. I would be. Yeah. I want everybody to know that this project started out as me behind the scenes yeah. supporting Garrett, and when I think it was with Nirmala. 
in Opus 25 yeah. that you went, come on, you're coming in here and doing it too. And I'm like, are you sure? Are you sure? But aren't you uh, glad that you did for that one in, in particular? Yeah, but that for was so great, many of these conversations. That was a great opus. But, um, you know, it's this is an uncomfortable space for, and I'm not saying uncomfortable in a negative way. I'm just saying that these are difficult conversations that I ha- I don't have much experience with. Yeah, yeah. And it's my hope that somebody's getting something out of it, you know, <laughs> apart from just me. Yeah. If 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 anyone me. So once again, Scott, <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Let's get into this fourth movement. If we can just pretend that today is today and we have no past, nothing created this, there's no long history and legacy of legalized uh, discrimination, then we can use that rhetoric of equality without actually having to do anything to address the inequality. So if, if you actually have to grapple with the past and all of the institutions that really uh, conspired to keep black people in uh, the lower caste, then you are charged with having to do something to rectify the current inequality. Nicole Hannah-Jones is one of my heroes. When we talk about content creation, when we talk about research, really stepping out and shaking things up, keeping it trill, who has done that in recent years more than Nicole Hannah-Jones with the 1619 Project? Yeah. The, yeah. the folks that are just shook at it. Before we get into the that part of, you know, of the conversation, I wonder if you could speak maybe reprise. I don't remember if you talked about it on Triloquy or not, but you know, a a portion of the 1619 project that really struck a chord with you. First of all, the 1619 project for folks that don't know is um uh, the series of articles and conversations and, and just media that shine a light on the issue of race, the history of race in the in the United States. So if you have no idea what the 1619 Project is, please go find that while you still can, I suppose, if the if the government has their way. But when it when it comes to like the music conversations in the 1619 Project, I really appreciate the story you tell about it. Yeah. First off, uh, you know, last week we talked about a bill in Idaho that was going to cut all racial mm-hmm education programs in Idaho that passed. Here yeah. Are. Yeah. So, um, what did I say? The racist potatoes. <laughs> here they anyway. come. Here they come. <laughs> um, on, uh, the daily, which is the podcast produced by the New York times, they produced a Sunday series, part of the 1619 project. And yep. one of them was all about the blackness in music. And it hit for me because so many of the tracks that they were, talking about was in the yacht rock you know the 70s early 80s soft rock sort of vibe and i thought it was very effective that she uh they they built that show in a way that by the time they told you that all this was rooted in blackness you're invested so you you gotta listen it's too late now you you got right so i'm thinking you're just racist if you cut it off now (laughs) i'm i'm thinking about the white person you know in their luxury automobile (laughs) looking out through their white little head Uh and they're thinking they're oh man now i have to listen to the rest of oh see i think that was really well done (laughs) that's funny that's funny to me well you know with with the good well, all of it is good. I, sh- I should say the the whole project, everything that it is, some of the things aren't so scary. I don't think it's so scary to acknowledge that your favorite dad rock song 
is black, you know, for anyone. Just I, I say you generally. I don't I don't think that's so scary. But there are other parts of it that have a lot of people just feeling uncomfortable because as it said, truth hurts. I'm reading here from WAVE3.com. This is one of the uh, news affiliates down in Louisville. The headline is, uh, it quotes McConnell by saying, 1619, the year blacks were enslaved in the United States, not most important point in history. Let me just read a little bit here. This is uh, McConnell. There are a lot of exotic notions about what are the most important points in American history. I simply disagree with the notion that the New York Times laid out that the year 1619 was one of those years. We're, we have this discourse, Scott, where folks want to say, well, America started in 17, what is it, 1776, mm -hmm. so we should really do that. And they just want to, to, to brush under the rug, mm -hmm. you know, the truth, what built this country, the traditions that have seeped out from that just violent, just so that, that dark past. And it's, it's, it's challenging to find something wrong in something you love. For a, a lot of these white men in positions of power, the idea of America, mm -hmm. they just love it so much. I didn't want to make this triloquy about reading Mitch McConnell because we can do that every week. He does some fucked up. Like, I still think about the fact that he, if it was up to him, we wouldn't have gotten our little checks, mm -hmm. uh, the, the mm -hmm. little money that we got. So it's always something to talk about with him. What I want to focus on is how... As I just said, it is challenging to think of something you love, find something you love, something you've trusted, something that you consider a part of you culturally, and to really understand that it's problematic, even at its core. You know, you make me think about that a lot, Scott, because, you know, some of the conversations we have here on Triloquy, you're like, well, damn, I, did, I, I didn't know that that was that or, or that this was that, you know, sure. all the way to the point to where you say you're just not surprised anymore. If somebody is racist, you're like, it, it is what it is. I wonder if you can, um, you know, speak to getting past that challenge and maybe if Triloquy has uh, been, a, been a good training ground for, for you to do that. Getting what a, past what? Getting past the challenge of, wow, I love this thing, but it's so problematic. I'll, I'll, I'll offer this um, example. We were talking about uh, Joe Button earlier. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and a lot of you know the, con, the content on there, the hip-hop-focused conversations and music, a, a lot of it, more than half of it, is very misogynistic. And just really living with that and understanding that truth is one of the reasons why I love listening to women in rap so much, flipping the flipping the script, you know, while I spend why I spend so much time with Megan the Stallion and and all those people just, you know, getting a tick. And my 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 response to, you know, something that I love, there just being something wrong there and just having to sit with its own evolution. So I, I wonder if, you know, if you can speak to that concept. I know there, as we've kept saying, there are a lot of conversations here on this podcast that are uncomfortable, maybe even thinking about something that you love, something like classical music being um, problematic, but really working through that, using that point of realization, wow, there's something wrong, that point of resistance, that point of dissonance as an opportunity to do something, you mm -hmm. know, and not maybe we don't know what that is specifically, but to not just do nothing, you know, to do something, to think something, to change mm -hmm. some sort of pattern, you know. One of the things that has become crystal clear to me is that uh, people of color need to have more positions of power, mm -hmm. more platforms. And I want everybody to know that on four occasions I have tried to quit this podcast <laughs> and so that some so that a person of color 
could take this platform with mm-hmm. you. And I want everybody to know that Garrett won't let me. <laughs> uh, we have to have the right person, Scott. Triloquy is, Triloquy is not just a throwaway that I can just put anyone in the chair, and that's that. Not to say, again, tri- Triloquy hosted by Garrett McQueen and Scott Blankenship is not forever. I hope to set something up that someone else can jump in, and mm-hmm. Triloquy is bigger than us. Then it's it becomes bigger than the host, an ideology. You know, sure. but I feel like, you know, with, with, with those goals, I have to be very protective of this. And up up to now, up through these first 100 opuses, there hasn't been anyone that I just want in that seat. Shout out to Jonathan Gibbs, who did a great job of guest hosting um, that week where, where mm-hmm. Wayne Shorter was on. But you're a part of this, guy. You were a part of the birth of this. You were in the room when we were going through the music dictionary, trying to find a word to, you know, play sure. off of for the title of this, you know, sure. coming up with Triloquy. So it's, it's not a, it's not a boat that you can just decide to jump off of. I'm sorry. Well, you're you're right. <laughs> you're and here. It's 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 not for lack of. Not, it's not because I don't want to. Yeah. Do it with you. It's because I know that there is probably somebody out there who would like the opportunity to have an impact, a greater impact yeah. in this platform, and and it would probably be a good evolution. Yeah, and I also realized that you know, triloquy is bigger than me. Yeah, me as well. And and Scott, look, there are a lot of things on my side that I deal with. You know, when it comes to your being here, and we and we have these conversations. You know, I don't, I, I we don't keep things from each other and all that. So you know, when we've had to have the conversations about certain people not liking that you are white on this podcast, you know, the conversation of the the age disparity. Shout out to um, Katie and Delaney when they're in the room. You know, I'm I am old. You know, when they're in the room, so I'm sure you feel a way. You know, but I think that's a part of the importance of this passing the baton and you know having folks of your generation and not only your generation but of your years of service to classical music through broadcast you know someone in that crowd of people being willing to reach down and help pave the way for the next thing i think that's very important i'm looking forward to the day where we can add a co-host maybe there'll be three of us for a little while and you can slowly you know back into the bushes as as you want to do <laughs> When, but but we aren't there yet. <laughs> when when that day comes, and and I just also have to underscore, it isn't for lack of wanting to do it or wanting to work with Garrett. It's the idea of a better product that better serves the mission with a person that can deliver it more effectively. We'll or, get there. Um, has a different idea that can take Triloquy in a new direction, perhaps. I will say this as well. This is something that I've brought up in many board meetings. I honor white people who want to sit, um, step up. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I honor white people who want to step aside and give room to women, people, people of color, all of that. I also don't like the idea of white people being absolved of the responsibility of speaking on these issues. Because for a lot of people, it's comfortable. It's more comfortable anyway to set aside and not have to actually Face it. Mm-hmm. Face the mm-hmm. issues. You know, how James Baldwin talked about we can't change what we don't face. I think, you know, sorry, I'm this Coke here. Um, uh, you know, I think you should, it's also worth noting that it's not always completely comfortable for me to come up here 
and talk about some of the things I'll talk about to put myself out here. You know, the shit I talk on this podcast, I know, has disqualified me from a lot of opportunities. There are a lot of institutions that are not going to partner with me, that are not going to, you know, give me work, not going to do whatever because of the way that we approach this thing. There are also institutions that will. And I appreciate the fact that I have been given the opportunity to, you know, talk my shit openly and to see what institutions, what individuals are down. You know, mm, so mm-hmm. I, so I appreciate you in that regard, and I think it's so important. You shouldn't take for granted that you know maybe there's some white people out there that get practiced by hearing you. I hope you know <laughs> that's my that's my that's my hope because not all of y'all are reading these headlines and articles for y'all write them. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's true. In that Joe Budden art, let me go back real quick, just <laughs> as the example. What did it say? When they were talking about Metallica, here we go. It says, from, so they're talking about the drama um, on the Joe Button podcast. Mm-hmm. From a personal point of view, it was inspiring. In listening to four men reveal how their actions affected one another, the episode, a hip-hop version of Metallica's Some Kind of Monster, where the public airing of grievances was first destigmatized in the music world, felt like a therapy session. So anyway, talking about the hip-hop version of of blank, you know, and hearing a white person like you, Scott, explain why that is problematic and why you need to take pause when that sort of thing comes up. I think it's so important because we've been talking shit. There's plenty of black people out here trying to get us moving forward, trying to get progressive. So we here, I think it's so much is I, I, I will not say more important. I think it's also important for voices like yours, you know, to be out there. When I was back in my marching band days, Scott, when we had all of the choreography, mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember one time the band director um, was like, "Look, they know that the black people can do the dance. <laughs> it's the white folks doing this that's gonna make them excited. <laughs> they know we can do it." Okay, so you you get my point. I do. You get my point there. You know, I think about the resistance. That word kept coming up as I was thinking about, excuse me, as I was thinking about what um, this opus, this 100th opus would look like. And I think about how I love (laughs) resistance, okay? Even in the literal sense, when we talk about bassoon playing in the reeds, the way that I make my reeds, so I, I like for there to be a little bit of resistance. I like that pushback. It makes me feel like I can really blow into certain sections mm. without overblowing and all of that sort of thing. When it comes to smoking, you know, I don't like hookah because there's not a lot of resistance mm. in, in the in the pool. So all when I smoke a joint, use the whatevers, the the machines. I like a little bit of that resistance. Resistance in the in the less literal way. Maybe I've just grown to like that as well. I like being one of the voices that's pushing back because Mitch McConnell and them not afraid to push back, right? So, you, so we can't be either. Those folks at the Met aren't afraid to push back. You know, great news. I, this is that. Triloquy is that. I am that. And Do you want you to know, know the biggest bit of resistance I've gotten? Okay, here we go. What's that? You remember the elevator conversation on on racism, you know, and... Oh, they were mad? Yeah, there there were some people upset that that it meant 400 years of being whipped. (laughs) Well, well... That was my response. It's like, well... (laughs) Well, uh, well, well, what you want? Tell me I'm wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, as, as we close up here... Thank y'all. I'm honored. I'm 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 overjoyed, Scott. One hundred opuses. I remember that first one. That uh, actually, there's like a practice one that we did, and then it went away forever. I did think that there get was deleted? more than I think there was more than one. Are they? Maybe we'll make those <laughs> NFTs or something. No, we'll sell. Hey, get it? Make a couple milli off of them. 
we could uh, we could do something. <laughs> anyway, uh, um, so Scott and I are gonna take a little bit of a break for these next couple of weeks, but not completely. We're gonna offer some entracte. Did I say it right? Entracte? Mm-hmm. Entracte? Well, we'll talk about what that means a little bit next week, but long story short, we're going to um, take two weeks and give y'all a little um, introduction of some of our favorite callbacks from season one. So um, I'm going to um, have a pick. Scott's going to have a pick. So we'll do that for the next uh, two weeks, and we will come back with a new full opus um, for Opus 103 in a couple weeks. So Scott and I are going to um, catch our breath. In the meantime... Um, you know, let's keep it trill. Keep it trill. Keep it trill. Triloquy 100. Thank you, everyone. (laughs) 